All right, as you're getting settled in your places tonight, uh, find two places, the book of Ezra, as well as the book of Haggai. So you see if you can find both of those places, Ezra and Haggai. Tell me if this has ever happened to you. You're busy getting ready for the day. Perhaps your alarm went off and you stayed in bed a little too long. And uh, you're a little bit behind. So you're in a rush getting ready and uh, putting your clothes on for the day. And uh, in, your, in your haste of getting ready, you begin buttoning up your shirt or whatever. You just start buttoning and you go and you get to the bottom and there's a button. And there's no place for it to go. Then, of course, you look down and you, whoa, whoa, it's all, all messed up. Has that ever happened to you? How important is it? I heard a... Um, I heard my wife trying to help one of our boys this morning uh, who came out of his room and his collar was completely messed up and she was trying to instruct him to start at the collar and kind of work your way down. When you get the first button into the first button hole, you may have to look, you may have to feel to get that first one, but once you get the first one, the other buttons flow right from it, don't they? You don't really have to think about it too much. Now, I wish I could say, and I wish I could uh, claim credit for that illustration tonight. I did steal it. Um, But uh, Brother Kurtman, who was here many years ago, in fact, it was when I was a teenager, about, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, he used that illustration. The importance of putting the first button in the first button hole. He used that illustration, and I've never forgotten it. In fact, when I went to the book that I'd like to study in our sort of our next little series, the book of Haggai, it was an illustration that immediately uh, appeared in my mind. Exactly what Haggai was trying to communicate God's message to his people. And the message was simply, you need to put first things First, the book of Haggai was written during the remnant kingdom period of time. So this is after the return, just after the return. Uh, In your Bible, of course, you realize that the books of your Bible, especially the Old Testament, are not in chronological order. The books are ordered by literary type, not by order of events. And so you get through the law, the first five books of the Bible, and that's followed by your history books, the history of the nation of Israel. And so uh, then, of course, you have the poetic books like Psalms and Proverbs, followed by the prophets. Well, Haggai, of course, is a prophet, uh, and his book is, is inserted in the minor prophets, the smaller prophets. But as far as historically, Haggai fits in the period of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, the remnant period of time, and it fits right into the narrative between Ezra chapter 5 and Ezra chapter 6. goes right in there. In fact, uh, Ezra actually mentions Haggai a couple of times in those uh, few chapters. But Haggai and his contemporary prophet, his companion in ministry, a man by the name of Zechariah, were two very different and unique prophets, and I mean different from each other. You have uh, um, Zechariah, and he is, he is the thoughtful, and of course his, his, uh, his prophecy recorded in the book of Zechariah, is, it's lengthy, it's very picturesque, it comes with um, all, of the, all of these poetic references uh, um, alluding to prophecy, it's kind of, it can be a little bit difficult to, to understand. And, and God used Zechariah in a very special way, significant way, to communicate to the people in that way. Haggai is completely different. Completely. It's night and day. The book of Haggai is short. In fact, it's one of the shortest in all of the Old Testament. The only book that's shorter is the book of Obadiah. So it's one of the shortest books in even all of the Bible. It gets right to the point. It's pithy. 
There's no nuance here. There's no beating around the bush. There's no, what exactly is he trying to say? No, he comes right out, points it out, says it uh, plain as plain can get. And if you're kind of offended by it, well, it's the truth. And so he just lays it out there. That's the book of Haggai. In fact, uh, Haggai's ministry, if you read this book, you'll notice that each of his messages, he's got four unique messages or sermons uh, that he's going to give to the people. Uh, Each of them has its own specific date and very specifically dated. You'll notice that in verse 1 of chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 2, verse 10 of chapter 2. So he dates them. And so we actually see that Haggai's ministry of preaching to the people only lasted for three months and 14 days. So not a lengthy period of time. But all of this and this whole prophet, this, this whole book of uh, the prophet Haggai um, takes place over a very short period of time. The message that Haggai brings comes 16 years or so after a really, really exciting time in the history of the nation of Israel. Of course, God's judgment is now in the rearview mirror. God had judged his people, uh, the nation of Judah, at the hands of Babylon um, over the past 70 years. And now God had raised, had, had, uh, had put down the Babylonian Empire. He had raised a new empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And one of its first kings, not its first king, but one of the most prominent kings was a man by the name of Cyrus. Very fascinating individual in the Old Testament Uh, One that God prophesied many years before of his birth and his reign. And it seems like God raised up Cyrus for for that particular purpose and for a particular reason. He's just an interesting character. But when he comes on the scene, we don't really know why other than God moved on his heart. And he decides, you know what I'm going to do, which it doesn't make any sense. There's there's only one explanation and that is God. Cyrus just says, you know what I'm going to do? I really think that I really need to uh, send God's people back to Jerusalem so they can build the temple again. Like, where did he get that from other than God put it on his heart? And, of course, there's interesting thoughts, so maybe we'll get to find out when we get to heaven. But uh, he makes a decree. And let me just read to you his decree. It's recorded in Ezra chapter 6 for us. But here's the decree. It says, In the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be builded, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid, the height thereof threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof threescore cubits, with three rows of great stones and a row of new timber, and let the, the expenses be given out of the king's house. And also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple, which is at Jerusalem, and brought unto Babylon, Let them be restored and brought again to the temple which is at Jerusalem, every one to his place, and place them in the house of God. I mean, he almost sounds like a prophet himself, all right? I'm going to build God's house. I'm going to build it where he wants. I'm going to pay for it all. I'm going to make sure it happens. Let the house be built. Can you imagine being God's people in captivity, and God raises a king, And that king is your best friend. He's saying all the things that you have been saying for all of these years. And of course, Cyrus allows this first return to take place. So under the leadership of two men, specifically Zerubbabel and Joshua, a total of 42,360 people get together. That's a pretty big group, all right? Um, But they travel to Jerusalem, the nation of of Israel, They go to Palestine and they've got 7,337 servants with them. And Ezra uh, chronicles all of this, each one in his book. Um, and they return with this purpose, the command from the king and the command from God to rebuild the temple and to reestablish proper worship again. This was the first of three groups that you read about in the Old Testament. Zerubbabel being the first. Ezra being the second and Nehemiah being the third, that kind of taking place about around 80 to 90 years uh, of time. So first we have Zerubbabel and Joshua. And so God had commanded them, the king had commanded them as well, that God's house was to be rebuilt. And he provided everything that was necessary in order to accomplish that task. You can imagine the excitement. So you're there in Ezra, look there in chapter 3. 
kind of gives us the, uh, the narrative of how this work began and how exciting this must have been. So Ezra chapter 3, look there in verse 7. It says, or sorry, in verse 1, we'll read down through, uh, through verse number 8. But it says, When the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. That gives you the idea of the, the unity that was there. Then stood up Jeshua, Joshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the feast of the tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and of everyone that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They gave money also to the masons and, and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon and to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon uh, to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, and the remnant of their brethren, and the priests, and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. You talk about an exciting, exciting time. A people without a land, a people who uh, could not worship God in the way that God had commanded in, in, in the law uh, in the past, and now they're, they're coming to the land. The first thing they do is set up the altar. They're offering sacrifices. They're making preparation. They're buying the materials. Uh, they're, they're doing deals with Tyre and Sidon to get the lumber that they need, and everything is going great, and they set forward to the work. And then we read the book of Haggai. In fact, flip over there. We'll read our text tonight. Haggai chapter 1. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, I told you he was very specific in his dating, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways." Consider your ways. By the time that God's word comes to Haggai, this excitement that the people felt, the priority of obeying God and reestablishing worship in the proper place, the temple, in the city of God, Jerusalem, that priority, the priority of doing God's will had become a thing of the past. It had faded away. And God's command through the prophet Haggai, God's command to his people, is quite simple. Hey, consider your ways. Something is wrong and it needs to be corrected. We could say it specifically tonight, and this is the title of the message this evening, from these couple of verses, first five verses. The command is, consider your priorities. Or maybe we should state it better. It wouldn't have looked good English-wise, but consider your priority. But we say it often as priorities, so I'll leave it, there, leave it at that. But God was telling his people that they had neglected that which was most 
important. And I think this is a very real and critical danger for all of us as well. Because our lives are filled with all different priorities. Whether that's you know, your marriage, your children, your family, your career, church, housing, transportation, job, education, all of these things, all these different priorities in your life. And, and oftentimes these priorities wind up being pitted against each other. And there's, there's this conflict, there's a competition between, you know, which one is going to win out, which priority is going to get the, the, the proper attention. We're trying to figure out which one's going to win. But you'll note that God did not spend time telling his people laying out what the proper order of priorities were supposed to be. God doesn't necessarily get lost in those details, but his focus is very simple. Get the first priority right, and the other priorities will flow from that. In other words, if you get the first button in the first button hole, you're much more likely to be successful getting the rest of the buttons in the holes where they belong. God doesn't deal with the order of all the different priorities of life. He's focused on getting the first priority right. And I'm afraid that we are just like God's people. Our main problem is not necessarily the specific order of our priorities. Our main problem is that our top priority is not what it ought to be. And we are just like God's people. It's obvious that the people of God had become distracted. They had exchanged what ought to be their number one priority with something else. And we're going to see how tricky this is, how slippery this is in just a moment. But first we want to ask this question, what happened? How did we get here? What took place? If you happen to stay in the book of Ezra, go ahead and flip back to Ezra chapter 4. I want to show you what took place. And first of all, we'll deal with tonight the discouragements to proper priorities. Have you ever noticed this? When you set out to put God first, when you set out with proper priorities, the enemies of those things just seem to come out of the woodwork. You ever notice when, you, when you're, you're dealing with somebody who God is, it's obvious that God has alerted their, their, their soul to their, their need and they're curious and they want to hear more about God. They want to hear about the Bible. And they, they begin perhaps doing a, a Bible study with you and begin learning about salvation and all these things. And the devil throws everything and the kitchen sink at them. Vehicle problems, family problems, job problems, issues with the house, issues with the pets, issues with, I mean, you name it. The issues just come flying out of, uh, out of nowhere. When you decide, I'm going to get my priority, and specifically my top priority, in the place where it needs to be. Have you ever noticed that? This is exactly what happened to God's people. Look there in Ezra chapter 4. They begin building. We, we read about the excitement that was taking place. Verse 1, now when the adversaries. Oh, there's always adversaries to proper priorities. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity built at the temple unto, unto the Lord God of Israel. Then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Asher, which brought us up hither. Here comes these phony friends. And they say, Hey, we're so glad you're here. You want to build a house of God? Lo and behold, what a coincidence, so do we. And I feel like saying, well, where have you been the last 70 years? But anyway, let's point that out. We're, we're here with you. We're, we're here to help you. And, 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 and they feigned, they faked a desire to help with the true intention. We'll see this in just a second. Their true intention was derailing 
the desire to put God first. And there's a lot of people in our lives that, you know, we decide to say, you know what, God is first. My relationship with God is first. Doing God's will is first. There's a lot of people that will come along and they'll be your friends. And they'll begin talking about, you know, are you sure about this? You know, there's other things that you really need to pay attention to. That, that you know, leave, that, leave those things for later. There's, there's other things that, that need your attention. Don't get so crazy. Don't get so fanatical about it. And these phony friends, they feign a desire to help and their true intention is just derailing doing what God wants you to do. Immediately, these folks come out. It's like there's no time. As soon as they start building, these guys appear. Phony friends. The second thing we see in this chapter is those phony friends turn out to be perpetual frustrations. In verse 4, it says, In the people of the land, and it's referring to the ones we just spoke of, the people of the, the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them. In building and hired counsel, counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even unto the reign of Darius, king of Persia. These perpetual frustrations, and they point out the kings. So, this is through multiple regimes in the empire of, of, of Medo Persia, multiple kings, multiple regimes, and these people are doing the same thing. They're troubling them, they're a constant thorn in the side trying to get them to get discouraged and, and to stop doing what they're doing, and they weaken them over time. They just nag and nag and nag. They hire these, these counselors. They, they put their money where their mouth is, and they, they say, we're going to hire these men to frustrate the work, to stop this idea of putting God in his proper place. And when you decide, I'm going to put God first in my life, there is going to be enemies, there's going to be opposition, there's going to be people, there's going to be frustrations that are going to come to, de to derail you from getting the first button in the first buttonhole. It's not easy. There's difficulties that are coming. Not to mention, verses, uh, in verse 6 and verse 11, there's these perjured fabrications. There's these letters, these false accusations that, be, that, that are written to the king to, to try to, to, to get uh, some government pressure to bear, to get them to stop doing what God wanted them to do. You see this in verse 6 as well as in verse 11. There's a whole letter. We're not going to take the time to read it. The, the text of the letter is given between uh, verse 11, I believe, all the way down to uh, verse number 16. They, they make this accusation, and sure enough, by, by the time we get to verse number 21, there is a response from the king. There's powerful forces that are brought to bear. And the king says, give ye now commandment to cause these men to cease. And that the city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me. Take heed now that ye fail not to do this. Why should, ye, why should damage grow to the hurt of the king's? Now, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and, and Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, then they went up in haste. Oh, now they're in a hurry. With the letter, waving the letter in the hand, look what we got, and made them to cease by force and power. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, so it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It's amazing how quick and how fierce the opposition is when we start to get our priorities straight. And 16 years goes by. 16 years. The people had come back. They were excited. They were pumped up. They were charged up. God is going to be first. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what the plans are. Here's how God has provided. This is great. God is first. We're returning to the land. We're going to be the people of God again. We're going to worship God again. And now the work has stopped. The weeds are growing. Nothing's taking place. 16 years goes by. The idea that the people had, be, had gotten used to the fact that, you know what, it's just not worth it anymore. It's too difficult. I'll just turn my focus to home 
and worry about me and the things that have to do with me and my family. I'll just worry about being comfortable. 16 years goes by, and we see a very real example or a display of improper priorities. I really like how John Phillips in his commentary describes the the state of the people. He says this, The early pioneers had thrown up rough houses to shield themselves from the elements, then turned their attention to the temple. They immediately cleared away the rubble and laid the foundation. But when the work was halted by the court order, they meekly gave in, and I'll add, without any sort of fight. Most of the people, born and bred in Babylon, had grown up surrounded by a uh, a sophisticated civilization. They were accustomed to the arts, the sciences, and refinements of a cultured people. In the promised land, they were suddenly reduced to a primitive lifestyle. Professional people, statesmen, poets, and idealists now had to plow and plant, hoe and reap and quarry stones and do sentry duty. It's no wonder that as soon as possible... They abandoned their volunteer work on the temple and devoted their time to improving their own living conditions. One thing is unmistakable from the book of Haggai, and and we'll spend the rest of our time there, so if you want to turn back, you can. One thing that's unmistakable from the book of Haggai is the fact that the people were selfishly taking care of themselves while showing indifference to the Lord. They had become distracted and they had become self-absorbed. And that is exactly what happens to us when we don't get the first button in the first button hole. We descend into a condition which is I don't think the people saw themselves as self-absorbed and distracted. I, I don't think that was their self-assessment, but that was the reality. Because their priorities, specifically their first priority, got out of whack, everything else began to follow. And they descended into this really horrible state. They were a lot like the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Do you remember them? God wrote to them. He said, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. You had a love. You had a priority. God was first. You loved God supremely, but you left your first love. And so I am now telling you, verse 5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works. Get back to the first priority. And if you get the first priority right, It's a lot easier to order that which follows. But isn't this just like us? We allow less important tasks and less important responsibilities to take the place of that which is most important. We allow the Lord and his work to take a backseat to our own personal pursuits. We allow other relationships to intrude on our relationship with the Lord. How quickly, how quickly does this take place? And in our text, this display included, specifically in verse 2, and God points this out, this display included a lame excuse. And I think we can call it a lame excuse. Look there in verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say. This is what the people were saying. I don't know if this was out loud or in their hearts, but this is what they were saying. This is what was on their heart. The time is not come. The time that the Lord's house should be built. You say, well, what happened? What happened? I mean, 16 years ago, it was, the time is now. Look at all that God has done. Look at what he's provided. Let's do this. We're in this together. We're as one man. And now they're saying, it isn't time for that yet. Not now. Now, this excuse, it's not the time, could have been procrastination. Sometimes we treat obedience this way in our lives. We say, you know, I know, I know, God, that's what you want me to do, but um, I'll do that later. Not not right now. 
Can we, can we put that off? I'll, I'll, I'll add that to my New Year's resolution. Oh, wait, it's already January 2nd. All right, well, we'll just punt it to the next year. We'll make it the New Year's resolution next year. Procrastination could have been that. It could have been just busyness. You know, God, I'm, I'm so busy. I just can't right now. I'm sure you'll understand. I've got a lot of things on my plate, and let me just handle these things, and then I'll get to what I know you want me to do. We can see an illustration of that. You know, if, if you're involved with trying to, to bring people to Christ, you see this. When, 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 when they set that priority, I'm going to seek after God, and the devil just throws stuff upon them. They say, you know, I just got to deal with this. I got this thing with my job. You know, I'm working a lot of hours right now. Or I've got this issue that I'm dealing with at home. Or, or you know, the, the, the roof needs to be repaired. I've got a leak. You know, the car, there's problems with the car. Once I get all of these things straightened out, then I'll seek the Lord. And you know what's happening, which is one of the reasons why it's so heartbreaking when you see. You know what's going on. You can see it. Unfortunately, the same thing happens to us. The same exact thing. Now, whether this was procrastination or busyness, or perhaps it's even spiritually uh, eloquent or spiritually sounding excuses. There, there's some people that have pointed out um, in this text that they, they believe you know, this phrase, the time has not come. They, they believe that the, the people might have been looking at the prophesied 70 years. And God did make that plain to the prophet Jeremiah, the time that would take place. And depending on where you date the beginning of that 70 years, you could say, well, you know, the Bible says it's not time yet for that. Which if you do, and I don't want to get all, get all you know, tied up with this, but if you look at that 70 years and you kind of uh, date that 70 years, how long was that? It really started with the oppressions of Babylon during the kings like uh, Zedekiah and Jehoiachin and, and those others, those four main kings, the, the sons, the relatives of Josiah. When the oppression started, that's really when the 70-year clock began. And then, of course, it, it, it ends with the return of the people and the, the finishing of, of the, the house there. But they didn't, know, they didn't know all of that. So they're looking and saying, well, the date of the first captivity was such and such. And we're doing the math. And you know what? It's just not time for that. And boy, that sounded so spiritual. Except it wasn't. It was just a cover for improper priorities. And oh, there's a lot of really good spiritually sounding excuses that you can use as to why God is not the top prior, priority in your life. Why obedience to God is not number one. Why something else you know, is important and should be in its place. There's a whole lot of spiritually sounding excuses, but that's all they are is excuses. And that's all the people were doing. And God exposes that. This is what you're saying. And then he's going to turn that into a very sharp rebuke. God is clearly confronting his people. He's saying, your priorities are out of whack. There's a problem here. You'll notice that he, in verse number four, he turns the time, the time excuse right back on them. We could say the time table has, has turned. God turned it right back on them. He said, you say that the time has not come. I'm saying to you, is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lay waste? He says, you don't have time for me, but it's pretty apparent that you have time for you. Isn't that how this happens? I'm just so busy. I, I don't have time to give to the house of God. I don't have time to give to my relationship with God. But it doesn't take very long to do some inventory and you see, well, there's plenty of time for entertainment. There's plenty of time for relaxation. There's plenty of time for, for, for vacation. There's plenty of time for rest. There's plenty of time for, for home projects. There's plenty of time for expanding the business portfolio. There's plenty of time for overtime at work. There's plenty of time for... All this stuff, one after another, after plenty of time for that, but not any time for God. This is a problem. And God's pointing out, my people, 
This is a problem. He's not doing it in a very flowery, poetic way, you know, being careful to not offend anyone or hurt anyone's feelings. No, he's saying, you have a problem. It is, it is, you have, it's time. You have, ten, you have plenty of time for yourself. And so therefore, if your priorities were right, you would have time for me. But they're not. So the timetables are turned, and then God gives a very convicting contrast. He says, is it time for you, O, o ye, to dwell in your sealed houses while this house lay waste? This idea of sealed houses, that, that word sealed, it's used six different times in the Old Testament. It refers to the decorative, the, the not essential finishing touches. It's all those things that, you know, when you're trying to move into a new house, those are the things. We'll get to them later. Let's just move in. And you never get to them. Um, The word means covered, or maybe an easier word to understand would be overlaid, how they would overlay things with fine metals like like gold, for example. Um, It also means this idea of being covered with boards or paneling. And the word wainscote is actually in the, the definition of this. And some of you have that in your home. It has no function whatsoever. Well, I guess it has a little bit of function, but basically there's no function whatsoever other than it looks pretty, right? All right. So it's a, it's a pretty decoration to say, wow, this is nice. We have a hallway in our, in our house where our bedrooms are. And, and so, you know, one day uh, Jackie had the idea, let's, let's put some paneling here and a little shelf, and then we can cover the, the top of it with pictures and all that's so nice. And it is nice. And I could do a manly project and be the hero of the home and, you know, put up those, you know, trim it out, get it all painted, get it looking really nice and decorated. And, but that's just the idea. Is it essential? Is it structural? Does it serve any, you know, practical benefit? Not really. It's just extra. In other words, the people were busied in establishing and maintaining comfortable, plush, luxurious lifestyles. And boy, that took a lot of time and maintenance to do. Oh, we're so consumed with uh, uh, doing this project and doing this project and that project. And we just don't have time. We just don't have time for things at church. You know, we're just so busy. This is something we've got to be careful about. Are any of these things wrong? Is Wayne's coating in your house somehow a sin? Of course not. What was wrong, though, was the contrast. He says, you're dwelling in your paneled, beautiful, decorated houses in my house God's house the temple was just a pile of stones perhaps maybe arranged in a foundation by this point but nothing more that was it I remember when I was driving back and forth to college every day um, my my route would take me I didn't have to go this way but I often like to drive through uh, downtown Pottsville and there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting buildings there. And I remember every day I would drive by this building. And I remember taking this picture all those years ago. This is the Atkins Mansion. And it was kind of such a shame. It had become a moose lodge. That was the last people who had used the building. And it sat empty for decades. And it just looked so sad. Every time you would drive by it, this is the busy main street right through the center of the city. Every time you drive by it, this is what you would see. Not a pretty picture. When I picture the the site of God's house, this is what I see. Years and years of neglect. 16 years worth of weeds, worth of rubble, worth of of people abusing the site because no one was taking care of it. You know how that works. Thankfully, uh, right in the process of going to college, they, someone had bought it and there's all sorts of grants and stuff and they worked on it for all this time and that was the product. And I remember driving by every day just to see what they were doing and how it was made better and they had a tenant who was going to move in a business and it was a bank and unfortunately today it's, it's empty again. Um, but it's nice when we see things that are taken care of. If somebody cares. I don't know who that is, and I didn't necessarily, you know, get a bank account there because, wow, I'm going to support this. But it was nice to see that somebody cared. 
When it comes to God's house, this was the contrast. My house, your house. My house, your house. Do we need to look at this anymore? This is a convicting contrast. My house lies wait, or waste, I'm sorry. It lies waste. The idea of lying waste is it's sitting neglected, it's desolate, it's dry. The weeds had grown up. They were firmly established all around the pieces of the foundation that were there. That vision, that fresh excitement about renewed and glorious center of worship being established, that was all gone. It faded. Not for a few months, not even for years, but for 16 years. God says something is wrong. Something is the matter. And so God demands some proper priorities. In verse 5, he says, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, consider your ways. Verse 6, Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. Notice, first of all, in verse 5, there is a command to consider. And this word consider means exactly what it says. Stop and think. Stop and think. It's actually three Hebrew words that literally means set your heart on something. Look to the point that it affects your emotion. Look at the contrast between your house and God's house. Look at the difference. Let it affect your heart. Consider. Consider your ways. See, this is the thing with priorities. They have to be constantly considered. This is not an issue where you can, you know, utilize cruise control. This is not a set it and forget it. You have to constantly be coming back and considering your ways. Considering your priorities. Because our priorities can be so easily confused. So the Bible comes and tells us, Proverbs chapter 4, ponder the path of your feet. Ponder, stop, think about, consider. What way are you walking? Look at your life. Look at your priorities. Look at what you say matters to you and what your life says matters to you. Take a good, hard look. Ponder it. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 59, he says, I thought on my ways. I took some time to think on my ways, and when I thought on my ways, I noticed there needed to be a change, and so I turned my feet unto thy testimonies. Consider your ways. You see, when, we, when you don't consider your ways, when we don't consider our ways, a priority becomes the priority. This is where the problem comes in. This is where this is so slippery and hard to define. A priority becomes the priority. Take, take godly standards for an example. Should a Christian be concerned with how they display themselves, their appearance, their dress? Should a Christian be concerned with those things? Should they be a priority? I think they should be. They should be a priority, but what happens when they become the priority? We turn into the Pharisees. Because those standards are a priority that flows from the first button being in the first buttonhole and then down the line. When it becomes the priority, now the worship of God, the the, 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 the sensitivity to God, the submission to God is no longer the problem. It's you need to conform. And if you don't conform, you know, then, then there's no patience for that. Now, please don't get me wrong. I, I'm not in any way arguing against standards. I'm just saying this is what happens and it so easily takes place. Yep. I mean, should our families be our priority? Well, they should be a priority. Should they be the priority? This is what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 14. When he said, if any man come after me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children 
And brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, which is probably the bigger one of all of them. He cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you want to come after me, if you want to be one of mine, then you're going to have to put me first. And when I am your priority, there's going to be things that flow from that that are going to be interpreted by even family members who are close to you, interpreted as they don't have time for me. They have time for God, but they don't have time for me. Now, a lot of times that's just emotional manipulation. That's all that that is. But that priority winds up looking and feeling like, perhaps to them, like hate. And Jesus is demanding that. He's emphasizing the need to make sure first things are really first. Get the first button in the first button hole. And the first button, that first button hole is our number one priority, and that ought to be in doing God's will. Walking in submission to the Holy Spirit, moment by moment, day by day. That should be top priority. Not, and, and please understand, not our marriage. Not our children, not our family, not our church, not our career, not any other thing. Our love for God and and our passion of pursuing and doing His will ought to be top priority. And everything else flows from that. This is what God is saying through His prophet. And this is not an isolated uh, application or text. We find this throughout the scriptures. You're familiar with these verses. Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 and 2. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Consider your ways. Take a second to stop and think and examine what is my number one priority? And am I living that out? Because it's a whole lot easier to say, oh, doing God's will is my, my priority and then go and just live however I want. It's really easy to say. It's a whole lot different to actually do. Set your affection on things above. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Make sure the top priority is what it ought to be. And then consider the the last verse in this paragraph, which is verse number 6. Think about the consequences of neglect. This is so sad. But this is what happens to us as believers. It's in verse 6. Ye have sown much, bring in little. Ye eat, but have not enough. Ye drink, but are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there's none, there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Why do you sow? Well, you plant because you're wanting to receive a harvest. You're wanting to receive a crop in return. You're wanting to have enough. So you're working, you're laboring, you're planting, but it's just not enough. Why do you eat and why do you drink? Well, for the most part, it's because you're hungry and you want to be filled. They're eating and drinking. They have enough, but it's just not filling them up. Why do you wear clothing? Well, some of the reason is uh, because you, you know, be too embarrassed to, to go without, and that's a good thing. But of course, nowadays, it's pretty cold. And you wear clothing so that you can be warm. And if you're not warm, you put on another layer. And if you're still not warm, you put on another layer, another layer, another layer. And some of you exist all winter with like 10 layers just to stay warm. And so they're putting on layers. They're not warm. Why do you have a job? What's the point of a job? 
Well, to earn wages so that you can have enough to, to pay for things, to buy things. Except the fact that they're earning wages and it, they're putting it into the, a bag with holes and so they're just dropping it on the ground. They're, they're leaving it on the ground. They're not even able to use it. The wages are meaningless to them. What are we talking about here? What is the consequence when we neglect to put the when we neglect to put that first priority where it belongs? What are we talking about here? What we're talking about is frustration and dissatisfaction. And there's a whole lot of believers who have who have gone about their lives pursuing after other priorities and it is is it any wonder is it any surprise that they're frustrated that they're dissatisfied that it's just like they can't they, they can't seem to get what they're after. They live kind of on edge. They've got a bitter spirit and an angry temperament. Are we surprised? They're, they're dissatisfied. They're frustrated. And before I get too involved in saying they, when I get my priorities out of whack, guess what happens to me? I'm dissatisfied. I'm frustrated. I'm on edge. Things are not going my way. But get this now. God is saying that feeling, that's me. He's claiming credit for it. The dissatisfaction, the frustration, that's from me. I'm bringing that into your life. Because I'm trying to get you to consider. I'm trying to get you to stop and to think. And to realize that your priorities are not what they need to be. When our primary priority is out of whack, when it is not what it ought to be, we can expect to live frustrated and dissatisfied lives. This is how God deals with his people. So God, through his prophet, is telling his people, consider your priorities. Take a good, long, hard look. What is the priority? Has something that is a priority been exalted to the priority? Oh, it looks so good. It sounds so good. It may be even something that comes from the Bible. But it's not the priority. The priority is loving God and pursuing after His will. Is doing God's will really your number one priority? Can I ask myself the question, when was the last time I submitted a decision to the Lord and said, God, what do you want me to do? Oh, I know I have liberty to do. I mean, none of these things are wrong. None of these things are sin. But when was the last time I said, God, what do you want me to do? I really want to do that. Do you want me to do that? I really want to go there, be involved in that, do whatever. Do you want that? See, that proves that he is the top priority, not some sort of paradigm that we have set up to please ourselves. Is doing God's will your number one priority? Or have you allowed other things to take his place? And other things, perhaps even good things, Oh, it's so good. But it's not God. It's not doing His will. It's not pursuing after Him. They've taken His place. We've got to be so careful. We've got to take some time to consider our ways. The proper priority clarifies our life. When we get the first button in the first button hole... Now things become clear. The next steps become clear. And we're no longer frustrated and dissatisfied. 